0: Good morning, beloved Orangewood. You've all successfully sprung forward. Uh, or do you think you're at the early service? And the early service is a little bit more crowded than normal. Uh, did the spring forward happen earlier this year? or Is it just my imagination? Is it earlier? About the same spot earlier? It feels earlier. Thank God for Joe Creech. Last night, about 930 at night, he calls me up. Hey, Jeff. You know we're springing forward, don't you? Oh, sure, Joe. Oh, yeah, I'm all ready. Thank you, Joe. I asked Katie, did you know we're springing forward? Yes, I did. So uh, that's like the biggest fear of a preacher. You you know, you work one day a week. You want to show up on time, right? You don't want to miss that. So, Joe, thank you for looking out for your brother, and I'm glad you did as well. I'm more of a fall back kind of guy than a spring forward kind of guy. I don't know about you, but. I'd say we have two fallbacks, forget the spring forward, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> All the sloths in the room, yeah, one more hour of sleep. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, as we continue in this season of Lent uh, to set our face, like Jesus did, to Jerusalem and to the cross and to this incredible uh, redemption that he has won for us. We're going to look again at God's Word. We're going to pick up again where we left off in this Sermon on the Mount, an incredible sermon that Jesus preached like, well, only Jesus can. So may God's Word be alive to each and every one of us as we gather around it and to hear God's voice. Seven out of ten. Seven out of ten was the answer that one of our current elders and a very dear friend of mine Gave to a pastor who was asking the question about salvation. And does he think that he would go to heaven when he died and passed away? And his answer was, well, a seven out of 10. I think I'm a seven out of 10 kind of guy when it comes to the things that God has asked us to do. Uh, maybe if you boil them down to about 10, that I've come up with seven out of 10. I think I'm okay. As a matter of fact, he would say, look at it. Some of the people around me. I think I'm better than okay. I'm a lot better than a lot of people around me. And God, well, God's a nice God. God's benevolent. God's merciful. So I think seven out of 10 will work. I mean, for most judging systems, right? For most places, seven out of 10 is a a passing grade. I should be okay. Well, that's the way that we all typically think if we're honest about ourselves. I mean, by nature, we are self-justifying machines. I mean, by nature, we're really self-justifying maniacs. I mean, we want to make sure that we're, we're okay, that, that we have that seven out of 10, that we have a high enough score that at the end of the day, we are okay. We know for those of us, and it's really plagues all of us, self-justifying machines, when, when you're trying to make sure that you're okay and seven out of 10 is enough, we have a tendency to play God. We have a tendency to play God and to say what is acceptable and, and what is not acceptable. We also have another tendency that's, that's true of all of us. We we tend to spin our own interpretation of God's law or of scripture and God's rule. We kind of want to bend it in a way, well, well, it says this, but it really means that. And and we have such the propensity to kind of, to twist the words or make the words look like we're okay. At the end of the day, seven out of 10, we're, we've met the mark. At the end of the day, we are justified. We're okay. Well, the text this morning, Jesus, like only Jesus can, is dealing with all of us who have a tendency and a propensity to live out of this mindset of seven out of 10 is okay. That basically we're doing enough to justify ourselves. And Jesus in this sermon is, the way he's going to tackle this and the way he does it throughout this sermon is, he'll use this phrase, it's a contrast. He will say, you have heard it said. And he's usually referring to the Old Testament or probably more specifically what he's referring to when he says, you have heard it said. He's talking about the tradition, the the rabbis, the interpreters of the law and what the law said. And Jesus, this young rabbi, has the audacity to look back at the Old Testament and back at the law and say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. But here is the ultimate interpreter of the law. He's going to show us what the law really says. And he's going to be. He's going to be doing what Jesus does so well, lovingly. He's going to kind of tap on our chest. Those of us who are seven out of teners, that we think that we've done enough. He's going to say things like, you shall, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Oh, yeah, of course. And if anybody who murders, well, they're, they're liable for judgment. But Jesus clarifies what's really behind the heart of that law. He says, but I'm going to tell you, you shouldn't be angry with your brother. And even if you're angry with your brother, you're, you're liable for judgment. This incredible passage that we have, this part of this Sermon on the Mount, is really a call to all of us to examine our hearts, to look deeply into our hearts and to realize just how sinful they are. That's what Jesus does with the law. That's, he, he'll show us the law to show us our hearts to realize, uh-oh, there's a big problem here. There's a big gap here. Uh, there's, there's, it's, it's, we just aren't doing it. We need a savior. It's to call us to look at our hearts, but it's also a call, which Jesus always does as well, is it's a call for reconciliation. It's a call to, to make things right. But really, when we look at God's word, it's so beautiful. It's not a call first and foremost for us to make things right. It's a call, a realization of how God makes all things right through his son, Jesus. And that is the good news of the gospel because we will see that all of us have sinned and all of us need reconciliation. And that's really what the gospel is all about. It's that good news that we can be reconciled with God. It's, it's If you stop, we're going to read this in just a second. But I want you to ponder the bit of absurdity that Jesus says about this text. Because he's going to take anger and, and somewhat equate it to murder. And, and maybe even more surprisingly, he's going to say that our relationship with one another, that that the, our reconciliation, our being right with one another, should even precede worship. That it's that important to him. So let's look to God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to come and illuminate God's word to all of us, so we can understand it. Let's let's join that sermon on the Mount that was preached some two thousand years ago, but. Because inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's here for us. And again, God wants to speak to you, whoever you are today. You're here by design. If you're here the first time, welcome. If you're here every week, thanks for keep coming. But the reality is God wants to speak to you this morning. And here's his word. And not just to entertain you, but to transform you. So let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard it said... Uh, It was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And I remember growing up uh, as uh, brothers do ever call your brother a fool. We we learn that more in the King James. Ye who calls his brother a fool is in danger of hell's fire. And mama always reminded us of that reality. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, thanks for giving us Your son's sermon and your word here before us. What an incredible calling. What a challenge for all of us who by nature are self-justifying, wanting to say seven out of ten is good enough. Jesus, thank you for showing us the depth of our sin and thank you for pointing the law directly at our hearts. But God, one thing is very clear to the preacher this morning that only you are qualified to speak because this word, this word I'm guilty is charged. My heart is corrupt and broken. So God, would you do that which only you could do? Would you be pleased to speak through a sinner like me? And God, would you please speak audibly and clearly in a way that you give us ears to hear your voice? God, you would give us minds to understand your word, the sermon of Jesus that was preached so long ago. Give us minds to understand what it means to us. God, give us hearts to embrace your truth and your love and your gospel that's contained in this passage. And God, give us feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name, not so that we earn a seven out of 10 or an eight out of 10 or a five out of 10 rating because of what your son has done for us. May we walk in a manner worthy of his name. God, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, would you use those things to make us more like your son, our savior, Jesus. And it's in his matchless, holy name that we pray. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, you'll find in your outline, in your bulletin, an outline that will say again these words. Jesus continually uses this throughout this sermon. You have heard it said, but I say to you, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing, he's really getting to the heart of the matter. They had heard it said that this is the interpretation of the law, but but Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter. I want to give you a phrase here. It's a little bit of a wordy phrase love for you to try to think and ponder this for a moment the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart because it's the heart that's the matter let me say it again the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart because the heart is the matter what's what's wrong with us is our heart uh, jesus would later say in the gospel of matthew as he's uh, uh telling in matthew 15 19 and 20 and talks about the heart. It was, a, it was an interesting time. The religious leaders were looking at Jesus' disciples. And they're kind of judging them. Saying, well these guys are clearly sinners. Because they don't do the right ritual of hand washing before that they eat. They were down on the disciples because they didn't properly wash their hands. And they, they were calling them sinners because of some weird external hand washing. And Jesus is going to say, listen, for it's out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are the things that defile a person. It's not these external things that you wash your hands properly or not. This incredible text, the main problem that D- Jesus is dealing with in this text is that the people and the religious leaders had such an incredibly low view of sin and such an incredibly low view of the law and they had such a ridiculously high view of themselves is that they thought, ready for this? They thought that they could fulfill the requirements of God. They thought they could fulfill the law of God on their own. And Scripture's going to say there's only one who could do that. His name's Jesus. They they thought that that sin was just those external acts. Sins were those, those things that you commit with your hands or your words. Those external things. But they missed the whole point where it's not just external, but it's internal. Jesus is pointing at the heart saying, we have a heart problem here. And all these things that we do is because our hearts are depraved. Our hearts are wicked. They somehow thought, well, if I could keep some external commandments, as long as I don't murder, it's okay that I hate. As long as I don't murder, it's okay that I could be angry. As long as I don't murder, I'm okay to believe any way I want to believe internally. And they completely missed it. They thought that really God's law was more about behavior and less about relationships. They didn't realize that breaking God's law was more. It was breaking God's heart. And God has given us those to reveal who he is. And they didn't realize that since the fall, since sin entered the world, there's none of us. There's no one who is righteous. There's none of us who, who could keep the law. There's none of us who can justify ourselves. There's none of us. Even 7 out of 10 isn't good enough. There's none of us, if we were honest, if we really looked at the law for what it is intended to do, there's none of us who's seven out of 10. There's none of us who's six out of 10. None of us who are four out of 10. There's none of us who are one out of 10. Let's look at the 10 commandments. Have no other God before me. What gods do you put before God? Usually for me itself. Don't make an idol. What idol do you make out of your life? For me, it's usually comfort and my own personal peace. How do you abuse the authority that God's given to you? How do you abuse the the name of God? How how do you have anger toward one another? The reality is, is all of us have fallen short. You know, it's interesting. um, If we look at God's law and it reveals to us, what it's supposed to do, it's revealed to us our own heart. It also reveals to us that the heart matters to God as well. Tim Keller says that legalist remorse, a legalist uh, remorse says, I broke God's rule. But real repentance says, I broke God's heart. And what God is trying to do, what Jesus is doing here is trying to to aim at the heart. John Gresham Macham was a uh, theologian and Princeton Seminary professor at the turn of the century. He's got an interesting quote here. He says, a new... And more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. (laughs) I love these quotes that when, you know, this is like at the turn of this in the beginning of the 1900s. They're saying, man, do we need to be clear about the law of God? It's like the most pressing hour. What would they think about it today? But I love what he says. A low view of the law always brings legalism into religion. A high view of the law makes men a seeker after grace. You see, if you have a low view of the law and a high view of yourself, we think we could accomplish it. We think that we could be good enough, that we could score high enough, that at the end of the day, that we could stand before holy God on our own merits. That we could stand and have done enough to make appeasement for holy God, done enough to bridge the gap, done enough to earn our right to stand and have fellowship with God. But that's not why Jesus points us to the law. He points us to the law to see that, man, do we need a savior? Are we sinners? You know, interesting about Jesus is when When the seven out of teners came into Jesus's life, that those who were trying to be self-justifying, and there was tons of them, mostly they were the religious people. And when when these religious people came uh, to Jesus's life and they talked about their own seven out of ten success or what they did, you know what he always did? It's really amazing. He points them back to the law. One of my favorite stories is the story of a rich young ruler. Talk about the trifecta, right? Rich, young, ruler. You got money, you got youth, you got power. Man, that is the trifecta that we long for, right? So here he is, and yet he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Now, good teacher, interestingly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because even being young and even being rich and even being a ruler wasn't enough. He wanted more. So he wanted to know, what did he have to do? I mean, he's got uh, you know, maybe six out of ten so what does he have to do to make sure he's seven up? What do I got to do so I can earn, so I can have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments. Well, which ones? Well, you know, honor your father and mother and you shouldn't kill. You know, you know the commandments. And here's what the rich young ruler said. All of these I've kept since I was a young man. Really? Even before that, I love what Jesus says. Hey, by the way, why did you call me good? Why'd you call me good rabbi? This is so important. He says, there's no one good, but God. Do you have any idea who you're talking with? I'm a whole lot more than good rabbi. I'm a whole lot more than just a good teacher. This is God in flesh. Do you have any idea that no one is good? No one is self-justifying. Seven out of 10 doesn't come close to anybody. And he's like, no, I, I completely missed it. You see, the thought or the, the the statement, what must I do, is in complete opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thought of the fact that I have to be self-justifying. I have to be the one who does. I have to be the one who fulfills. I have to get seven out of ten, six out of ten. A complete complete opposition to the good news of the gospel that says Jesus is the one who does it all. When he says you have heard it said, but I say to you he's taking our self-justification meters and he's cracking them over his knee. He says that's crazy. You can't self-justify. We are all sinners. The law that he points us to was pointed to us into our hearts to reveal the reality that we don't need a savior that gets us from seven to 10 or a savior that just takes care of the little bit that we have lacking. We don't need a small savior. We need a huge, miraculous, grace-filled, sin-conquering savior. And for those of us who are self-justifying, hoping that seven out of 10 is enough, Jesus will never be big and Jesus will never be beautiful. You are too big in your own eyes, but by God's grace, when He reveals to us the reality, we're not seven out of 10. We're not six out of 10. We're not two out of 10. My goodness, we're not one out of 10. We're oh for 10. But we're loved. We're oh for 10, but we're forgiven. We're oh for 10. But in Christ Jesus, we have been freed. How can he do that? Well, but I say to you, the second thing is the priority of reconciliation. Once we realize the fact that we're unable, we see the beauty of this reconciliation he offers us. Scripture will tell us that we are saved by God's grace in the gospel and that we are to live by God's grace of the gospel. And that priority of reconciliation, first and foremost, begins where. In Christ Jesus, we can be reconciled with God. Now I know you hear those words in church, but let me tell you what it means. In Christ Jesus, those who are O for 10 can be reconciled with holy, sinless, eternal God in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. And their reconciliation with God. That's why, that's why Jesus came for us. It was for reconciliation. That's why Jesus would say in in the Gospel of Luke and other Gospels that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face to accomplish the mission. Jesus didn't come to be another good moral teacher. Jesus didn't come so that our seven of ten might get closer to eight out of ten. Jesus didn't come for those who were self-justifying, who thought they were good enough. As a matter of fact, he made it clear, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for those who think they could fulfill the law. I didn't come for those who think they're good enough. I came for those who are weak. I came for those who are lost. I came for those who are broken. I came to those who realize at the end of the day, they can't pull themselves up anymore by the bootstraps. They can't get it right. They're a complete mess and all their hope is, is that God is merciful and gracious. And they find Jesus to be just that. You see, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem because that's his whole purpose of coming, is to reconcile you and me to holy God. And that's why he had to come to a, whole, a cross. I mean, let me, let me read to you one of my favorite passages. It seems like every week I find myself in 2 Corinthians 5. I want to start in Verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if they've placed their faith in Christ Jesus by God's grace, that he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Is he saying in Jesus, an incredible miracle has happened that we have been reconciled with holy God, but he's done more. He's also given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now listen to the gospel as beautifully clear as it is here. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what this saying. That in Christ Jesus, he took those who were O for 10. Those who realize they have nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. And he took those who were O for 10. And he took the one who was 10 for 10 the one who was perfectly righteous, the one who fulfilled the law, the one whose heart was pure, the one who loved his neighbor as himself, the lo- one who loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, all of the time. He took the one who was righteous, the one who did fulfill the law, the only obedient begotten son, and he hung him on a cross and says, I'm gonna pour upon you the wrath of a holy God so that those who are O for could become in Christ Jesus ten for ten and become righteous and declared not guilty. You see, Christianity is not Christianity without a cross. We are not reconciled without a death. There is no hope without a resurrection. This is the gospel and the law of God points us to the reality that we need a savior who could make an atonement for a sin that could cover the sins of likes of you and me. And that is what we have. But you know, there's this incredible vertical relationship that's been restored in Christ Jesus. But unlike any other deity, unlike any other God, he not only cares about our relationship with him and how we respond to him, he cares about our relationship with one another. So this, this reconciliation thing, is like, okay, you've been reconciled with Christ, but now be reconciled to one another. I have given you this ministry, this vertical ministry of reconciliation. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's so important. He says, I want it to precede worship. If you come into worship and you realize your brother's got something against you before, before you worship, before you come to me, work to make amends difficult to do, isn't it? Let's just, let's get down to the brass tacks here. I mean, how are your relationships with those around you? What relationships are broken and strained and again, probably the ones that are that are closest to you, that hurt the most, the ones that sometimes it's the easiest to ignore. Do you know the incredible thing about our loving God who makes us all in his image is he cares about these vertical relationships? That he He's made us ambassadors to these vertical relationships that matters to him. I mean, there's a sense we can say we can't be right with God if we're not right with one another. I mean, yes, we're set free in the gospel, but really that's what he's called to. Let me give you a couple of practical thoughts. He's reconciled us in Christ and he's made us ambassadors, so we're like him. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation, so here are the three things I want you to know that we gotta do. First is this, is initiate. If you're a Christian, you're an initiator. You're an initiator of reconciliation. And we initiate because God has called us to. Why? Because God initiated with us while we were still sinners. Isn't it good news that God didn't say to us, I will send my son to come rescue you when you get your act together? Isn't it good news he didn't say that I will set a love on you that's eternal when you finally get it right? Right. No, no, no. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we're still sinners, while we're a mess, he moves toward us. He always is the initiator. He's always the one moving toward us. And in likeness of our Savior Christ Jesus, we need to be the initiators of reconciliation. We need to be moved toward those that we've sinned against or have sinned against us. Secondly, we need to apologize. We need to apologize we initiate that reconciliation. And sometimes... We've got to realize that our offended brothers, our offended friends, our offended neighbors, I mean, maybe it's not even the way they see it is the way that's reality. But let me tell you what apologies should look like. They shouldn't have any ifs, ands, or buts. If you apologize to someone and say, but, forget it, you didn't apologize to them. If you apologize and say, but, and, no. Or if, or even this, If you apologize to somebody says, you know, I'm asking for your forgiveness and now I'm putting the weight on you to respond to me. I think the call for us is to initiate, is to apologize where we've offended and we stick our chest out, we stick our chin out and we don't make excuses because we're loved and we're forgiven and free. And we say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We initiate, we apologize, and as it's up to us, we live at peace with those around us. As much as it is up to us, we can't pass the buck. Well, you know, hey, it's not up to me. They are the first ones. They got to move. If they move, I'll move. As long as it's up to us, may we live at peace with all people. Why? Because God is initiated with us. He didn't wait for us. As we're seven out of teners, you think you've justified yourself. Usually you live in a way you think, well, when they move up the bar, I'll move over toward them. You see, we act like Jesus. We set our face toward reconciliation. You know, for those of us who live seven out of ten lives, (laughs) we, we live our lives in hope that God will give us a passing grade. But really, we live our lives in fear. That we're just not good enough. But God, God doesn't, listen, this is not original. God doesn't grade on a curve. God grades on a cross. And the Bible will tell us that all of us have failed. All have failed. All have sinned and fallen short of God's perfection. All of us that none of us have anything inside of us by our nature that's worth loving and admiring by our holy God, that all of us have fallen short, but the cross reminds us that God took him who was 10 out of 10, perfect, and he exchanged his righteousness for our sin so that we, so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we, we could be the lavish love children of God So that God would draw us near and he's no longer angry with us. God's not angry because he poured that anger out on his son. So he pours out on us relationship, love and redemption. That's the good news. You see people who are seven out of 10 live their lives hoping they're good enough. But gospel embracing people live their lives. Watch this. Knowing that Jesus was good enough. He was good enough. That's the good news of the gospel. What God requires of us, God provides for us in his son, Jesus. That he was good enough. And now because of the reality of his life, the reality of his death, the reality of his resurrection, we're forgiven. We're free. We're loved. It's the gospel. When you know you're a sinner and you know that Jesus pursued you, Oh, the love you experienced for that savior. I think for us to finally fully get this is for us to see our own anger and our own anger that would lead to murder is our own sin drove Jesus to the cross. I think for us to really get this is we got to see the anger, the anger of God's wrath that meets them there on the cross that Jesus would fully absorb. So that we could be both reconciled and reconcilers. And that is who we are in Christ Jesus. You have heard it said that maybe seven out of ten were good enough. But I say to you, it doesn't even come close. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he and he alone is our only hope. Let us pray. Father, thank you for loving so incredibly well self-justifying maniacs like us. In our flesh, we want to live our lives thinking that seven out of 10, say whatever it is, is good enough. And we'll, we'll bend your law to make it look like we're doing the right thing. Oh, Holy Spirit, reveal to us the reality of our brokenness. May the law of God do its job. And crush us, crush us to the point where we have nothing to plead, but Jesus. May the law cause in us an incredible chasm between sinners and a holy God that only Jesus could bridge. And then God, would you show us the cross? Would you remind us of the gospel? Would you tell us again that you're not angry and that you love us, that we were reconciled with a holy God and you choose us. You choose us to reconcile the world around us with the gospel, to initiate, to apologize, and to live knowing that we want to make peace because it's important to you. Because Christ has made peace with us and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.